Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. In the first weeks of June 1391, the Jews of Seville and the Christian Spanish Kingdom of Castile felt menace in the air. Although Jews had lived in what is now modern Spain for centuries, often thriving under both Muslim and Christian rule, by the second half of the 14th century, Jewish fortunes had begun to decline. A major turning point was the defeat and murder of King Pedro, the monarch of Castile, by his half-brother Enrique in 1369. Depicted derisively by his rivals as king of the Jews, Pedro protected his Jewish subjects and even employed a Jew, Shmuel Halevi, as his treasurer. But the new king, Enrique, had little love for the Jews. Suddenly, there was less support for the rights of Jews and less concern with infringement of rules protecting them. By the mid-1370s, a wave of anti-Semitic Christian preachers arose, filling their sermons with anti-Jewish invective, depicting Jews as prideful, greedy infidels. Chief among them was Fernan Martinez. He was the archdeacon of a town near Seville in the south called Esija. This is Ryan Speech, an associate professor of Spanish and Judaic studies at the University of Michigan. And he began to give sermons, very anti-Semitic, aggressive sermons, preaching violence and hatred against Jews in and around the parishes, in and around Seville, sort of uh, for about a decade or 15 or so years before 1391, he was giving these sermons. By 1390, Martinez had assumed administrative control of church affairs for the entire region of Seville, giving him even more power and authority to stir up popular sentiment against Castilian Jews. The people were all too ready to follow the archbishop's admonitions to violence. Jews were resented as moneylenders charging high rates of interest and as royal tax collectors. And, of course, they were non-Christians, whose continued existence challenged the supremacy of Christianity as the one true faith. The king at the time, King Juan of Castile, tried to rein in Archbishop Martinez and curb his rhetoric, but when Juan died and his young son took the throne, Martinez was free to ramp up his anti-Jewish rhetoric to new heights, and in the summer of 1391, his fiery sermon sparked action and incited a Christian mob to rampage through and sack the Jewish quarter of Seville. And this started a mob wave or a mob action that spread outside of the Jewish quarter in Seville all the way throughout the peninsula. And over the course of a number of months, there were really thousands of Jews who were forcibly converted to Christianity at point of uh, sword or a threat of death and many thousands of others who were actually killed. The riots not only devastated Jewish families and entire communities, they resulted in a new class of people, forcibly converted Jews, who were now nominally Christian but still very much Jewish in their self-identities and beliefs. And they didn't really fit anywhere all of a sudden, and yet they had certain new rights that had been off-limits to Jews. Things like access to guilds uh, or trade markets, things like whom they could marry or what families they could interact with, and a number of other privileges, you might say. And at the same time, they didn't believe in Christianity for the most part. Most of them were either Jewish in some religious sense or not religious at all. And so they didn't really fit a profile of this new Christian, newly baptized person. 
The in-between status of these former Jews had important unintended consequences for Spanish Christian culture and society. If Jews were formerly suspect outsiders, at least they were recognizable as such and for the most part lived in separate Jewish parts of the city. Now, Christian Spanish society was confronted with the problem of how to regard the former Jews. Suddenly, genealogy became crucial for distinguishing families with a long Christian lineage from the newcomers. People began to talk about even the role of blood. That is, uh, if you had Jewish blood in your family, it began to be a negative trait. And the very concept of blood hadn't been discussed before in this way. So this is sort of a very quickly caused the emergence of new concepts to come into the discussion. And discrimination became systematic. Little by little, these Jews were excluded. or We don't know what to call them, and so we call them converts or conversos. So these conversos were discriminated against in Castilian society, and they were no longer considered Jews by their community who remained Jews, and they were not fully considered Christians by the Christians who had forcibly converted them or their descendants. So they were caught in this new category. Now, the underlying causes of the violent events of 1391 are many and varied. And in that regard, it's important and interesting to note that forcing Jews to convert was not a new concept. In fact, several decades earlier, a former Jew who had converted to Christianity wrote extensively about why Jews ought to accept Jesus as the Messiah and voluntarily convert. His name was Abner of Burgos. We don't know anything about his family, exactly where he came from, whether he was extremely poor or not. But we do know that he got a a sort of typical Jewish education. As a boy, he learned to read Hebrew and Aramaic, and he had training in rabbinical literature, in Bible, Torah, and Talmud. And so he was a very educated person, and he is called by many a rabbi later on. We know that he was a prominent person in the last years of the 13th century. Sometime around, say, 1290s, he is what most people understand to be a doctor, a medical doctor, in Burgos or near Burgos. According to Abner's writing, around the year 1295, a messianic movement sprung up among Jews in the nearby towns of Avila and Ayon. On the day of the Messiah's promised arrival, the Jews of those towns waited eagerly in an appointed synagogue. When the Messiah failed to appear, the Jews were deeply disappointed, some even to the point of despair. In his account of the events, Abner describes treating some of the crestfallen Jews, an experience that, he says, sparked his own doubt. And he began to question his own Jewish faith when he saw all of these other people first falling for this messianic movement and then uh, also being very distressed when it didn't follow through. And so in 1295 or so, he begins, he says, to doubt. But he doesn't just simply throw everything away and become a Christian at all. He continues his life as a Jew for a number of decades, practicing medicine, and he says he began to study Jewish sources and philosophical sources on the side to try to delve deeper into these questions that were now plaguing him, and that he continued to do this. He doesn't really specify exactly what else was going on in his life, but uh, we know that he, he did this for at least 15 or 20 years. Eventually, as Abner tells it, his doubt gave way to despair and to a momentous decision. And he 
at one point tells the story of, of despairing, going into the synagogue and praying to God to have mercy on his people, the Jews, who were lost and needed a leader. And he talks very practically about this, how they were burdened by taxes, how they had no great leader. They were split amongst themselves in their own society. There were many different factions, some sort of mystical, some intellectual, and he's referring to the those followers of Maimonides, some who believed in types of magic or sorcery, he thought, and other types of things that he said split the community. And he really says that he was crying out for his own community. And he falls asleep in the synagogue, according to his narrative. And that's when he has another one of these great dreams. And when he awakens, that's when he decided in his sort of inner faith that he was going to to follow Jesus as the Messiah. At first, Abner kept his newfound devotion to Jesus to himself, and he had little interest in practicing Christian traditions or in learning Latin. Instead, he set about trying to prove, using Jewish and Arabic sources, that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. So he took up this campaign of reading the Talmud and other rabbinical writing, great sources of later rabbinical writers such as Maimonides and many others, as well as Arabic philosophy, which was available to him in translation. So writers like uh, Ibn Sina, Avicenna, or Ibn Rushd, Averroes, and a number of other philosophers who wrote in Arabic. And he tried to use them to prove the truth of Christianity. Abner then began writing himself, composing polemics against Judaism. But unlike other Jewish converts, Abner wrote in Hebrew, aiming his work at a Jewish audience to try to prove to his former friends and colleagues, and maybe prove to himself, that Christianity was the one true faith. He wrote in a Jewish style and quoted numerous Jewish and Arabic sources. He even translated some of his works into Castilian. Abner's longest and strangest work is the book Moret Sedek, which in Hebrew means teacher of righteousness. Like most of his works, Abner wrote it in Hebrew and translated the book into Spanish. As speech describes it, the book is a mixture of apologetic and polemic. That is, it attacks Jewish belief and proves Christian belief. It's an apology for Christianity and a polemic against Jewish doubt. And it has entirely to do with the single premise of proving Christian truth uh, and disproving Jewish doubt on the basis of Jewish sources. So this is something unique about his book is that it it's concerned with sources and how sources are perceived by the reader. He has actually a discussion in the beginning which uh, identifies what sources are, are legitimate to use in what contexts. And he says that Christians can't use sources that are only considered authoritative by Christians if they're talking to Jews, and vice versa. Jews can't use sources that only Jews believe in if they're talking to Christians. Whereas he says he's going to be a Christian who talks to a Jew, so he's using Jewish sources to talk to them. For speech, one of the most interesting and strangest parts of Moret Tzedek is a story Amner tells about a community of Karaite Jews who supposedly lived in medieval Spain sometime during the 12th and 13th centuries. Karaites were Jews who we might call fundamentalists, Jews who rejected the oral rabbinic tradition and followed only the laws written in the Torah. It's not entirely clear that a Karaite community actually existed in medieval Spain. At least, there's no hard evidence that they did. 
At the time Abner was writing about them, the Karaites would have been long gone from the region. In any case, what's really interesting is the story Abner tells about the Karaites. So he says the following, It was not long ago that these Castilian Jews and many of the Jews of Spain were Sadducees and heretics. And this is a term he uses to talk about heretics or what he calls heretics, uh, meaning of different different sorts in Spain. And then uh, there's, there's also a discussion of among scholars of what he actually means by these. But he's clearly talking about people who don't believe in the Talmud. And so that's why we understand Sadducees and Pharisees, Sadducees here referring to Karaites. But he says that there were there was a controversy between the Sadducees and the Pharisees in one town in Castile. And at a certain point, the so-called Pharisees, that is the Rabbinite tradition, went to the king at this point, who was Alfonso, King Alfonso VIII, who was a king in the late second half of the 12th century and early 13th century. They went to the King Alfonso, Alfonso VIII, and asked him to intervene in their affairs. And so, according to Abner's story, the king, the Christian king, passed a law that forced all of the Karaites, all of these Sadducees, to become Rabbinites. And he, the word he uses here is uh, conversion. He says the king for, passed a law forcing all Karaites to become Rabbinites and convert to the faith they now have in the Talmud. What Speech finds so fascinating about this story, he says, is Abner's focus on the conversion of the Karaites to rabbinical tradition. Where other Jewish scholars had written about Karaites who were wiped out or forced to stop teaching, only Abner uses the word conversion to describe the movement of the Spanish Karaites from one form of Judaism to another. So why does Abner tell this strange story? Speech suspects that Abner in some sense identified with the Karaites. That is, not that he is a Karaite himself or accepts Karaite belief, but he is uh, a fellow complainer against Rabbinite tradition. So unlike Uh, many of the other Christian polemicists of his day who were writing about Jews or Jewish tradition and rely mainly on the Bible. Uh, In some sense, they quote uh, different biblical testimonies and try to prove their point. Abner was interested in a different line of attack. He wanted to say that the Jews themselves were not reading the Talmud carefully enough, that the Talmud concealed a truth that had been hidden Uh, and refused by later rabbis. So he's, in a way, attacking rabbinical tradition, not saying it's illegitimate, but saying that it's misunderstood and that it needs to be reinterpreted. One of Abner's main arguments in Moret Tzedek is that the rabbis who wrote the Talmud secretly knew that Jesus was the Messiah. But because they didn't want to teach that explicitly, they hid it within the winding arguments of the text— And so, Speech argues, Abner was interested in using the story of the Karaites as an example of resisting the teachings of Rabbinic Judaism and attacking the tradition. And the Karaites also serve as an example of Abner's claim that throughout their history, Jews have been forced to convert and are now wandering aimlessly without direction. And they need a teacher of righteousness like myself and Jesus essentially to guide them to the truth. So he paints a picture of the Jews as lost sheep who have repeatedly been forced to turn from this to that 
and are now in need of guidance. And so this is another reason I think he tells the story of the Karaites is in particular the, the forced conversion of the Karaites is that he is basically suggesting that that forced conversion is part of Jewish life. It's something that's happened to Jews many times and that Jews are lost because of this. They're wandering about and don't have a good tradition. And so he encourages his readers, his Jewish readers, to go back and reread more deeply the Talmud and and Torah so that they can see what was lost. And this is this is really his plan of attack. Most polemics written against Jews by Spanish Christian writers didn't have much effect on Jewish communities. They were written in Latin, and so Jews didn't read them and didn't really care what they said. But Abner's writing was different. Because he wrote in Hebrew and in a meandering Talmudic style, Jewish Jewish intellectuals did read Abner's work, and they fiercely rejected its arguments. Because of the stir that Abner's book caused, and because of its unique emphasis on conversion, some historians have argued that Abner's writing is an early first step towards the riots and forced conversions that were to occur several decades later, in 1391. But speech isn't so certain. In fact, he believes that while on the surface it may seem like 1391 can be traced back to Abner's advocacy for forced Jewish conversion, in reality, they're not connected. And it's actually a sort of misreading to see him as a logical step along the way towards the events of 1391. And the reason I say that is because these arguments and these books are extremely intellectual. They're talking on a level of theology and of exegesis that really has nothing to do with daily life or experience uh, of most Jews, uh, most people in the Iberian Peninsula. And the riots of 1391 were not intellectual events. They were not the culmination of ideas about Jews that had been circulating in theology. They were mass riots that were the product of anti-Semitic sermons, and they were propagated mainly by the masses. They were not really led by the church in any sense. In fact, they were opposed by both church and government, and they were anti-intellectual in any way that you conceive them. The overarching point, Speech says, is that Abner's story and the tendency of historians to link him to the events of 1391 demonstrates the danger of viewing historical events as logical conclusions, especially violent events. Such events don't have to happen. They're not preordained. Because I believe, in this case, these things uh, have to be understood in their very particular social circumstances. Otherwise, we'll believe that these things are destined to happen again. It's the same line of thinking that lets us believe that the violence against Jews in the 20th century, that the Holocaust was somehow a logical conclusion of some other earlier event or policy, which it was not. And I think that if we can get history writing away from this kind of causal thinking that that sees these acts of violence and these moments of crisis as logical culminations or necessary conclusions to earlier events, perhaps we can get away from uh, the repetition of these events in history to see them as things that can be avoided rather than things that must come to pass. 
Frankly Judaic is a production of the Jean and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. You can find the podcast on any podcast app, and we'd truly appreciate a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.